You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. If I were to ask you what keeps you up at night, what would you say? Like, what is the film role on your ceiling that while you are lying in bed keeps playing repeatedly? What is it that nags at you every day? The more you attempt to stuff it, the more it tends to stay around. Maybe they are solely personal films like anxiety and loneliness and isolation and fear and insecurity. Questions like, do people like me and will they ever approve of me? And will this physical ailment ever go away? Or does God really love me or even like me? What am I constantly afraid of and why does my fear never seem to diminish? Why do I not hear from God when I pray and why do I find the Bible so difficult to read? Why do I feel constantly restless and why does grace seem so distant? And maybe they are relational film roles, things like marital challenges or family strife or dysfunction with your boss or rebellious kids or lost friends. Questions like, will it ever get better? Will my parents ever understand? Will my marriage ever work? Will my boss ever let up? Will I ever gain a hearing with my friends? Or maybe they are just social issues within our city. Things like the justice system and homelessness, poverty, abortion, mental health, domestic abuse, educational disparity, the environment, the exploitation of women and children. And you think to yourself, what's the solution? Is it policy or personal? Why are my prayers not being answered? Why is there still so much evil in the world? What is my role in it? And is it normal to feel guilty for not having to struggle with these issues personally? Is it normal to feel apathetic when the results feel somewhat hopeless? We all have things that don't leave us. That at 3 a.m. when we wake up, it's what we're thinking about. We all have things that disturb us and disrupt us and disorient us. And there is nothing going on in our lives personally or in our city's life communally that is going exactly as it should be. For most of us, we probably find ourselves disoriented in each of those three spots. Maybe our life with God and our life in God is difficult and dry and distant. And maybe our relationships are strained or stressful or conflict-oriented. Or perhaps we see things in our community that we cannot unsee, and our efforts to combat them feel futile and meaningless. In the end, we long for these things to be renewed. We long for them to be made whole, to be made right. We long for healing where there is pain and justice where there is injustice and righteousness where there is sin and peace, when there is strife and unity, where there is division. It's just innate in all of us. It's how we're wired. (laughs) By our very nature, we look back at the beginning of the story of Scripture and we find one of the most fundamental truths that we hold to as Jesus followers, and that is that we are made in the image of God, which means we have things like emotions and longings and desires, and we create and we work and we rest and we play and we enjoy and we live And by merely having that framework, we image God who created and enjoyed and rested and longs to be in relationship with us. And now 
our relationship with God is broken. Sin has broken it along with our desires that become disoriented, our motives that become self-serving, our affections that are misplaced, and our loves that place creation over creator. And sin has broken our relationships. There is now challenge and difficulty and even sometimes enmity between us. We all don't get along all the time. We don't live in harmony with each other's best interest in mind. We don't seek to serve one another. And inevitably, sin has broken our world. There is need in our world. There is destruction in our world. Systems in our world are broken. Sin has permeated so much of our world that there is nothing that it has not touched. It infects everything. Now we have people living on the streets. We have people who are hungry. We have infants who die because of malnourishment. We have people who die because of things like the opioid crisis and a global pandemic. We have needless violence and mass incarceration and domestic disputes and abandoned children. So what do we do with this? Well, for the next semester, we are going to walk out a vision for this church. And in short, our vision statement is this. We long to see our neighborhood renewed by the power of Jesus. And in many ways, this statement echoes the most famous prayer in all of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus prays, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That prayer has massive power through the Spirit's indwelling in us to form us. And our vision statement is a reflection of that small little statement in the prayer, on earth as it is in heaven in North Knoxville as it is in heaven. So how does that break down? What does it mean that a neighborhood, a city, a community, our streets even, would be renewed by Jesus himself? Well, I propose that it means three things. Spiritual renewal, relational renewal, and cultural renewal. Spiritual renewal. We long to see our neighbors reconciled to God. Because of Jesus, we can be adopted as sons and daughters with confidence and humility. We didn't need 2020 to prove that there was a lack of reconciliation with God. But if we ever had a doubt, doubt no more. We turn on cable news, we get on social media, we engage with our parents, we are married or have kids, we live with roommates, we have friends. By nature of being human and interacting with other humans, we know the brokenness of others all too well. As followers of Jesus, we believe evil is real and sin is real and that there is a force in us that urges us to do things that bring dishonor to God, great harm to us, and great destruction to those around us. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 2. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Ephesus and he has just finished writing about all the privileges and blessings and sweetness that is our core identity in God, who we are. It's one of the most wonderful passages in Paul's letters. But then he moves on and explains why it's so beautiful. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is no good news for us if we do not understand the bad news about us. We do not get to God without first understanding God, and we do not get to God without first understanding self. We don't understand radical forgiveness if we fail to understand egregious error. Who needs forgiveness if all we have ever done is succeed? And who needs healing if we've never experienced harm? And who needs reconciliation who has never been separated? Or who needs wholeness who has never experienced brokenness? And who needs life who has never experienced death? Notice the language that Paul uses here, sons of disobedience, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is some familial language happening here. We do believe there is an author of evil in the world, and he is actively at work. He is not a figment of our imagination. He is not make-believe. In fact, he is actively wrecking lives, wrecking families, wrecking societies. The prince of the power of the air is Satan or the evil one. And in our Western mindset, I think it's difficult to not just laugh at or scoff at the cartoonish version that we have made him out to be. And the more we laugh at the caricature that we have made him, the less likely we are to believe and see that he is out to steal and kill and destroy. And then Paul says that spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is us. This is all of us. There is no one in this room and there is no one out there in the world that will hold their merits up to God and say, I have done enough. And then perhaps one of the great verses in all the ancient text, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the summary of a life in God. It's God for us in his great mercy. It's God toward us in his great love. It's God with us. We are seated with him right now. And it's God in us working out the good works that we are made to do. We are made alive by God's grace, with God's power, through God's Son, to God's presence, for God's glory. It is the Christian life, a rescue mission where God has come down to earth and saved us from ourselves and from himself into his love and joy and peace and away from our narcissistic passions and our self-interested desires and a life that is all about me. And what is amazing about this is not that we now work for God 
or are now somehow employers for our, our employees, for our new employer, we did not get a new job. We got a new name. We do not have a bit more pep in our step. We have breath in our lungs. We do not have someone to lean on. We have someone to thank. We were lying dead on the gurney in the life and breath of Jesus resurrected our hearts and now they are beating again. We call God, our God, the God, Yahweh, holy. Yes, but we also call him Father. The intimacy that we now have with God as our dad is quite frankly unthinkable. And I don't know the relationship that many of you have with your dad, but I do know that my generation, studies have shown this, that massive father wounds do exist. Whether it was an absent dad or an abusive dad or an estranged dad or just a strained relationship with your dad, we all bring something to the table. And that inevitably colors our view of God as our father. And I don't have time to get into all the ramifications of what that might mean, but let me say this. Whatever your relationship is like with your dad, God the Father speaks a better word. There is not one dad, there is not one parent that is perfect among us, but there is a Father in heaven and hallowed. The Greek word there is eros, meaning sacred, set apart, holy, differentiated. Our Father who is in heaven, holy, awesome, differentiated, sacred is his name. And here we are in 2021, and we want this for our neighborhood. We want this for our neighbors. We want to see them know the living Jesus, the resurrected King, and the one who has made them. We want to see them brought into the fold and the family of God. We deeply desire that. We want to see people come to know God as their Father. We all have God as our creator, and we will all have God as our judge, but we will not all have God as our father. But we want those who are in our community to experience the security and the confidence and the humility of God as their loving dad. To relational renewal, we long to see our neighbors reconciled to one another. Because of Jesus, we can be free to embrace one another as brothers and sisters with grace and truth. Keep reading in Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Some context here, the Jew and the Gentile divide is long and it is deep. And the ancient Near East, which is the world that is described in the scriptures, was divided up into two parts. You were either a Jew, an Israelite, or you were a Gentile, a non-Israelite, meaning your family lineage either came down from the line of Abraham and the tribes of Israel, or it did not. And if you are a Jew, you are an insider. You see yourself as the people of God. You were the people that God rescued from the hand of the Egyptians. You were the people that God brought through the Red Sea. You were the people that God provided manna to and gave victories over other nations and were provided for repeatedly. You were, as Isaiah says, a light for the nations. 
You were to stand out so that the world, the Gentiles, would see and know and worship Yahweh, the one true God. But as we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is great disdain between Jew and Gentile. And if we look a little harder into the New Testament history, we see something remarkable. When Herod the Great rebuilt the Jerusalem temple, he greatly expanded the temple precinct, and he made a boundary of the sacred space with the addition of a massive raised platform. And this then created an open courtyard around the sanctuary, referred to most notably as the Court of the Gentiles. And in fact, early Jewish writer Josephus records that warning signs in Greek and Latin were placed along the barrier. And these read in part, no outsider is allowed to enter within the barrier surrounding the sanctuary. Violators were threatened with death. Several years ago, in fact, archaeologists found an inscription in the wall of the outermost court, and it read, whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So when Jesus comes on the scene and ultimately cleanses the temple and declares that the temple was for all nations, he spoke those words very close to the barrier because the court of Gentiles is where the economic activity of the temple took place. And any Jew would have taken great offense at this audacious claim. Only the Jews could make it past a certain point, and then only the Levites a certain point after that, and then only once a year into the Holy of Holies. So the stipulations are so high and the ramifications are so great that for this temple to be a place for all people, which is non-Jews, to step in was considered absurd. The counter message, the offensive message of Jesus was this. He was literally rejecting the physical and social divides between Jews and Gentiles. Paul later uses the words fellow heirs to describe the Gentiles. And in ancient Near East culture, if you were an heir, you were everything. You inherited all that would be passed down to you, land and property and animals and the name, all of which were a huge deal in the society. So now that Jesus is calling Gentiles who follow him heirs, it has become problematic and offensive to the Jewish people. Because of Jesus, Gentiles who trust in the name of the Lamb of God are on equal standing with the Jews. But not only equal standing, but equal standing under the same roof with the same name. And if you've studied the book of Acts, you know that the gospel of grace, while offensive, was not the only thing that routed people up. It was also Gentile inclusion. It was the thought that we would include them. Look back at the passage in Ephesians that we just read. Paul is writing to the church that is made up of both Jews and Greeks. And he says, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The mystery of Christ that Paul speaks of in Ephesians is not merely the good news of grace, but the good news of grace for all people, for both Jew and Gentile. They are now both reconciled to God, which means they are becoming reconciled to one another. One of the 
great and disturbing and blatantly wrong myths about the kingdom of God and following Jesus is that it is a purely individual endeavor. And we cannot read the Gospels accurately or adequately and come to that conclusion. There is a personal aspect to following Jesus, of course, where we, were, where we are reminded that we as individuals are made in the image of God, loved by God, pursued by God. But there is no private aspect of following Jesus, where we keep our discipleship to ourselves, where it only affects us and it's namely about us. That is a form of narcissism, but not a form of apprenticing under Jesus. And to be honest, it is difficult to try and put ourselves back in first century Palestine with an Eastern worldview and a collectivist society with different customs and agendas and ways of life. But it's not impossible to understand what Paul is getting at and how what was written 2,000 years ago is so apt for us in 2021. Many churches in this city, most churches in this country, were known for being churches of the North and churches of the South. That was a thing. Division, racial division inside the church is not something of the past. It's not something of merely the early church, though it definitely was, but rather it's an issue now. <laughs> Walk into most churches. Walk into this church and you will find a mostly monolithic church. And we desire to change that. We want to look like the kingdom coming. We may find it difficult to grapple with first century divisions, but we understand the nature of racial and socioeconomic divisions in this country, in this city, and even on this street. They are here. And we have an aspiration here at Mosaic because it is an aspiration, meaning we are aspiring to it, not that we have arrived there. But we have a longing not yet realized, and that is to be a church that is not monocultural, but multicultural, and not monoracial, but multiracial. And it is easy and takes little risk and requires little of us when we engage with people who are only like us, who look like us and act like us and talk like us and engage in the same hobbies and watch the same shows and love the same sports and just care about the same things. It's easy to do that. It's what all of us, in fact, naturally been to. And it's not all inherently wrong. It's just not the full way that Jesus calls us to. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that you can't hang out with people who like the same stuff or watch the same shows or eat the same food. But it does mean that if your discipleship to Jesus only and always puts you around those like you and is never pushing you outside the bounds of your like-minded company, then it may be time to take some self-inventory and ask, who exactly do I believe makes up the family of God? And what exactly am I doing to learn from my brothers and sisters who are not like me, but love Jesus so much that they reflect him and his character and his beauty in ways I either never will or struggle to? I mean, just think for a moment about our community, our country. What is more compelling in 21st century life than people who are from different walks of life, generationally, socioeconomically, single or married, racially, culturally, even one day linguistically, coming together and calling one another brother and sister. In what is being called some of the most divisive times since the Civil War in our country, there is no better picture, no better visual of the kingdom coming than people who share so little in common except the risen Jesus who has called them friend, sibling, 
and God who has called them son and daughter, living in and making up the household of God. This was the New Testament church. It wasn't clean. It wasn't easy. It wasn't sinless. The early church had massive problems. The church at Corinth and the church at Galatia had huge issues. And yet Paul says to them, you are one. And our vision for our neighborhood, for our city, is that because of Jesus, they too could call one another sibling. Because of the blood of Christ that was spilled on their behalf. Trusting in Jesus and throwing their lives at the foot of the cross and hanging on to his grace, they are offered a transfer of family lines from who they once were, sons and daughters of disobedience, to sons and daughters of the king and brothers and sisters to one another. I love Psalm 68, 6 that says, God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing but the rebellious live in a scorched land. In Jesus, you get an entirely new family. And the last is cultural renewal. We long to see our city reflect the city of God. Because of Jesus, we are compelled to give our lives to our city as servants and citizens with justice and mercy. And my prayer for this neighborhood and community is that they would notice if we ever left. I pray they would be a void left if the people of Mosaic ended up locating to another community. I genuinely pray for us that there would be a lingering question in the back of our minds. Are we collectively and am I individually making a just and merciful impact in the name of Jesus? Not an impact that says anything about you and not an impact that is seen by hundreds and hundreds of people but an impact nonetheless. As we navigate an ever-challenging world, we need not fret or worry about the, quote, decline of the church. In fact, strangely enough, we may take some strange solace in the fact that the church has largely been deemed obsolete. You could make the argument that once the church buddied up to power in ancient Rome and Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity changed forever. Followers of Jesus were moved from the outskirts and margins of society where life was compelling and difficult and tight-knit and open to outsiders to the seat of power, where it then became advantageous for you to become a Christian because it was the official religion of the empire. Now it appears that the pendulum is swinging back the other way. Now, there are still hundreds of churches in this city and thousands of churches across the nation, yet the posture and views towards the whole of Christianity, is greatly different than the last hundred years. A few years back, Barna Research Group did a study where they found out the two most popular views by people in this country toward the Christian beliefs and behavior were this, irrelevant and extreme. Irrelevant meaning that there was no impact that Christianity was having on the betterment of society. It wasn't providing anything meaningful or impactful or fruitful. It was like a loud tree falling in the middle of the forest and no one around. And everyone would say, who cares? Extreme, meaning the views one holds are dangerous and destructive and do more harm than good to those who adopt its practices and way of life. So the two words used to describe serious followers of Jesus are irrelevant and extreme. So the question is not, 
How can we get Christianity back to the seat of power? The question is, how can we get spiritual power back into the real Christianity? And I think the answer is threefold. We must rediscover our dependency on God in prayer. And we must rediscover our relationship to one another as siblings rather than merely acquaintances or friends. And we must rediscover the way of Jesus that leads us to the deep and dark places of our community. We pray because intimacy and encountering the living God is what our souls are stirred to the most. We long for our souls to be satisfied in God, and God longs to meet us with more of himself in our prayer. What if we became a people of prayer, really? The 30 of us or so in this room became people who were enamored by God in prayer. We could not get enough of being in the very presence of God himself, a people that longed for and enjoyed and communed with the presence of the living God daily. And we invest and are invested into by others because we are convinced that isolation and loneliness are not the way of Jesus. 2020's isolation and quarantine is not how the world is supposed to be. And we long to gather around the table and break bread together and open our homes and be in our backyards and open our hearts to one another. Why? Because Jesus meets us there. If you claim to follow the risen and reigning king, his spirit makes his home in yours. So gathering together is a way to encourage and ignite and enrich our spirits by being encouraged by the spirit of the living God. We get to carry one another's burdens. We get to honor one another as siblings. We get to live communally as a family whose love for God obviously leads to our love for each other, especially amidst our differences. And then we commit to pressing into the forgotten and ignored places in our community because God has not forgotten or ignored them. Jesus engages all people and all kinds of people throughout the Gospels, but he is typically drawn to those who have no voice and no say and no sway and no influence and are not wanted. The lepers and the poor and the blind and the lame and the sick and the deaf and yes, even the dead are who he is drawn to because there is a desperation for his free grace. If we want to see our neighborhood renewed by Jesus, then we seek to serve our city as good citizens. I mean, we care about our community. We plant in our community. We work for the community's well-being. We pray earnestly for our community. We want people in our community to flourish. We want there to be equity. We want there to see we want to see justice done in our city. We want to see mercy break through on our streets. Think about this. Did you know that over 50% of phone calls to the police in this community are domestic violence related? We, as a church in this community, should want that number down. Our presence long-term in this community, our neighboring, our witness, our call for justice and righteousness, our care for other image bearers, should mean that we pray that number would be eradicated and work to love our neighbors in such a way that restoration and justice are done. We know neighbors who experience profound loneliness. We should want to change that. 
We too know the feelings of isolation and loneliness. And so we work and live in such a way as to invite the lonely into our families and prayerfully into the family of God. And we know that even God himself says it is not good for man to be alone. And we know he isn't namely or only talking about marriage, for Jesus himself was single when he walked the earth. But rather, he's talking about the scope of community, which is intimate, relational, safe web of people following Jesus together. We want to be a foretaste of the new city of Jerusalem. We as the church want to be that. And we know that there will always be sin in the world. We know there will always be brokenness in the world. But we also know the power and spirit of Jesus manifested in us to bear witness to him and his kingdom has great potential to radically transform our community. We as the church cannot, must not, and will not sit on our hands and think, well, I mean, it's going to be broken until Jesus comes back, so I guess we'll just hope he comes soon. The attitude of apathy is not what it means to love God, and it's not what it means to love neighbor. What it means to do both is to be obedient to Jesus, open to his love, compelled by his heart to, as Jeremiah said to the Israelites in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Not unlike Daniel in Babylon, God has placed us and sent us into this city, into this community. Let us be in prayer for it. Let us long to see others come to know the living Jesus, the real Jesus, and be brought into community with each other and have evil and sin and darkness cleansed from their hearts and their homes and their lives. And we pray that for us as well. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.